Well, he's the lead singer of a band that won the CMA Vocal Group of the Year four times. And he's the latest member of the Honky Tonk Time Machine. Tonight, we're hanging out with Marty Rowe from Diamond Rio. Marty, it's very cool of you to take the time and talk with us tonight. We sure appreciate it. Good to be with you. Absolutely. Marty and Diamond Rio are coming to Poplar Bluff, Black River Coliseum on Friday night. We're excited for this concert. Uh, this will be my first chance to get to come see it after all these years. I've still never seen a Diamond Rio show. What am I in for? Well, um, uh, fortunately, we're going to play an awful lot of songs that uh, you and a lot of other folks played on the radio and people seem to enjoy. We've been really blessed the last, my goodness, over, over 30 years now, almost 31 years uh, since Meet in the Middle, our first single came out, and uh, to say the least, our lives were slightly different after that. But uh, so we're looking, yeah, we're looking forward to it and and have fun. That's it's the entertainment business, man. After the last couple of years, having the chance to be back out and do what we love and see people out enjoying one another's company, that's uh, I guess I have a renewed uh, uh, perspective on all that. Um, so we've really enjoyed the last year getting a chance to be back out, and hopefully we'll get to continue that. All those big hits, all those number one songs, uh, chances are you're going to hear most of them uh, come Friday night, right? Absolutely. We aim to please. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a good thing to do. Again, uh, Black River Coliseum, Poplar Bluff Friday night. How much has the show changed, or, or have you had to scale back at all since, since COVID hit? I mean, what's the production going to be like there? Uh, the production is exactly what we've always brought, uh, we, um, and we we bring a little extra um, just because we we like to put on as bit, as good a show as we can. Um, but uh, no, we don't. You know, we're not we're not able to do meet and greets and things like that. I guess was you know one of the things just uh, that seems to be what the halls and everybody wants to do. So we we're kind of. They keep us uh, locked up, you know, and, and let us out for the show and, and then lock us back up. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's for our protection. I think it's for others. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, keeping everybody safe. And, you know, a lot of times you go and see bands, you kind of go and see like a, a watered-down version of it because bands don't stick together all that often. But Domino Rio has had the same lineup since, what, 1989? I mean, you guys have, have stayed together all these years. We have, yeah. We've been very blessed uh, to uh, uh, all the way through uh, this year. We, you know, while well, we're just getting started, but um, uh, don't want to jinx it. But yeah, we we uh, we like working with one another, and uh, we've always enjoy, enjoyed uh, enjoy the fruits of uh, the labor that that all of us uh, put forth in the suffering. You know, the, the slim times. Um, you know, we, we had several years there before we, we had a hit that uh, we, everybody said we were overnight success, but it was a pretty long night. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get into that a little bit because I'm curious. Um, we had we had Ty Herndon on. Uh, it's been a while back, but obviously he was one of those founding members of the group back when you yep. were calling yourselves the Grizzly River Boys. Um, you came along yep. after that, but that was kind of the genesis of it all, I guess. Uh, it kind of started at Opryland back in the day, didn't it? That's right. I, I took Ty's place, but uh, in 1984. Um, but they started in I think '82, um, and Ty. It was called Grizzly River Boys for a second because the show was next to this. They had this new uh, water ride called the Grizzly River Rampage. Uh, but they changed that to the Tennessee River Boys, and we operated under that until uh, we got our record deal, and we obviously we, we wanted to change the name. Um, it was not really. In, 
it kind of conjured up ideas of a, uh, a gospel, you know, country gospel band of some sort um, or quartet, which is not really what we we did, what, what you know as Diamond Rio now. Um, and so uh, we we came upon the name Diamond Rio um, and with a lot of experimentation and uh, pain and misery that I'm glad I don't have to do anymore. Um, <laughs> and we really liked the name. Uh, Gene Johnson, our mandolin player, high harmony singer, came up with a pretty cool logo and we were ready to go with that. So uh, in uh, in nine, basically the end of 90, we, we swapped to that name. But the music was pretty much all the same at that point. But yeah, Ty was there at the beginning and he left, uh, I think 83 was the last year he, or 80, part of 84, he went and did uh, the second year of, the first or second year of Star Search, first year of Star Search. Yeah. And uh, he did really well. He, I think he ended up finishing second um, and got a record deal out of that and, and kind of went on out on his own and did well. So, uh, yeah, no hard feelings, but uh, he, he, I came back. I, I took his place and, and worked at the park in 85. And then we left the park and starved to death from 86 to 91. So. <laughs> <laughs> As a young artist, you got to do what you got to do to get by. And I think I heard before you actually joined Don Rio, you were doing Larry Gatlin impersonations at the park. Yeah, and a lot of other folks, too. I, I was in a, a cast show called Country Music USA, and I had met up with, I knew, we fact then we had the National Network, Television Network, uh, which was a great, great uh, breeding ground for lots of great talent that came out of Nashville during that time. And uh, so I was on that TV show several times a year, around 10 or 15 times a year, and was with Porter Wagner and then the, the uh, one of the founding members of the Tennessee River Boys uh, named Danny Beard and, the, and another one, Matt Davenport. They they were they either hosted and or were in the house band of some of those shows. And I got to know them. And when Ty left, they they came to me and asked me to to do that. And I was excited to do it. And I knew that they had had aspirations to. Uh, to get a record deal and, and try to move on from the park. And, and that meant that we did a lot of original things and wrote and we went through two or three different producers and uh, got turned down a couple times. And finally I met up with uh, Tim DeVoy and my roommate, Monty Powell and my roommate in college. He, uh, I got him to produce some stuff on us and uh, that we'd written, he and I had written together and uh, Jimmy Olander and uh, Tim was, yeah, he was a friend of ours, a writer that I sang demos for. He had produced a band called Restless Heart. And uh, so anyway, we I got a chance to uh, to get to know him, and then he got his chance to be president of a new label, Arista Records, there in Nashville, and uh, he signed us on along with some other folks that did fairly well, you know, like Brooks and Dunn and Alan Jackson, Van Tillis, you know. <laughs> it, we we had a had a good run there. It wasn't a very big label, only about eight of us to start off with, but uh, we got to come out on that label, and uh, and really things never were the same. Those folks ended up doing all right, and and you shared producers obviously with with most, if not all of them, uh, Keith Stegall. Uh, who was Alan's producer yeah. as well. Um, I, right. I, I heard that he was key in you kind of becoming the lead singer of Diamond Rio because it wasn't That's right. going to happen that Yeah, I, was, I wasn't the lead singer when I first came in. I sang high harmony and played mandolin, kind of what Gene's role was. But when Gene came along, I mean, 
I, I hung the mandolin on the wall, and I'm sure I've touched it since. And I got I started singing the lower harmony, and then and then Keith thought that maybe I should uh, we should try some tracks with me singing on them, and that's what really got some folks interested. And in, uh, you know how it is; it's all timing and and just being at the right right place and the right time and being prepared for that, I guess. But uh, that's, yeah, that uh, Keith played a, played a big role in, in that part. But the stuff that we did with him didn't end up getting, the music didn't get interested, but we changed configuration of the vocals, and and, Dan, and Dana Williams came along there in 89 and uh, really uh, routed out the, that, the vocal sound that we have. Gene and he beat both being from a bluegrass world. And it just kind of locked in the second that we started singing together uh, in rehearsals. It was like, okay, this is the missing link. So <laughs> I'm not sure Jim, Dana would like being called the missing link, but <laughs> hey, man. <laughs> um, but it's worked out, uh, no doubt. You talk about him coming from a bluegrass world. So he's he was the last of the current lineup to join up. And he certainly brought that bluegrass cred with him because he's related to the legendary Osborne brothers, right? He is he is a nephew. His mother is their sister, Bobby and Sonny. Sonny just passed away this past uh, summer, um, and Bobby is still out there uh, doing the Opry at age ninety or ninety one, something like that. Wow! And still singing Rocky Top, and uh, <laughs> yeah, so uh, he definitely came from that that world. And Gene came, was uh, is a little older than the rest of us, and he'd been working with lots of different bluegrass. He had his own band called Second Generation in the late 70s, mid-late 70s, and worked with J.D. Crow and New South and uh, people like that, Ricky, Skaggs, all, all those folks that Gene was in that circle for a long time. And We got a chance for him to uh, come and audition with us, and it was, yeah, it was we were like, yeah. We, we didn't have any plan to have a full-time mandolin and whatever, but we really liked the texture between Jimmy's bender guitar and the piano that Dan played, and and that mandolin was a unique instrumental sound, so we really take take some pride in that, but we have a... usually know it's diamond reel before the singers ever start singing, so that's part of being a band, as far as I'm concerned. We were lucky enough that Tim DeBois allowed us to, uh, to actually play on our own records and and produce our own records and things like that. So uh, he was, uh, he kind of took a risk on us, and uh, and I hope he would say it paid off. I'd say so, and uh, he'd had success with bands, like he said, Restless Heart. I was just talking to Larry Stewart a few weeks ago, talking all about that. So um, 1991, the, the hits start rolling, uh, Meet in the Middle. You, you talked about it. You became the first band to have your debut single, hit number one. You think about all these bands, Restless Heart, Alabama, all the ones that came before you, not able to do it. You were the first one to do that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that, that was we. That was not on our radar, okay? It went number one and somebody, you know, you know how it is, published this or somebody dug up the stats on it and they went, you know, no other band has ever done this. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I mean, I, I was, I was, you know, kind of in oblivion. Um, I think all of us were. We, we, uh, we were just glad, honestly, when we released it, we, the, the the talk was, you know, amongst all of us and the label was that, man, if we could get one in the top 20, maybe the top 15 as a first single, we, we'll be well on our way. And uh, and we got in the top 10, and then it was at number four, and they were like, we might go to number two this week, and it went from four to one, and then it stayed there like, 
three or four straight weeks. So, uh, yeah, and we were still, you know, I was still cutting grass. Jimmy and I had a cattle lawn care service. <laughs> <laughs> we were trying to figure out how we were going to, you know, farm those jobs off when we started hitting the road. But, I mean, yeah. The success happens way before the money starts coming in, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> but hopefully you didn't have to cut grass too much longer after that anyway. <laughs> not a whole lot, not a whole lot. But, uh, I, cut, I cut my own grass. Yeah. I enjoy it. Yeah. Nobody does it as good as me. <laughs> That's the only the other thing I do really well. <laughs> so, so obviously then my next question was going to be, you, you didn't see the success coming for meat in the middle yet you didn't realize it was going to be that big of a hit when you first heard it huh well i don't i don't think we ever dreamed that big and i, I think my our whole career I, I could only speak for me but I, I i don't know that i ever never remember dreaming about being a member of the grand Ole opry for example i mean i didn't know that i didn't know what that meant you know i'm um I just, you know, getting a chance to play it. When I worked at Opryland, I played the Opry for the first time in 1982. And Porter Wagner, of all people, introduced me. And I was just like, this is, I thought I'd made it. You know, and he's like, wow, check that out. And, <laughs> and we had played the Opry quite a bit. They, they wanted us to come play. We were current. We were having some hits. So, and they we wanted new, fresh talent. And then so about 97, uh, Bob Whitaker was the manager of the Opry at the time. He asked us to, uh, if, he told us that he, they'd like to invite us to be members. And no band, I mean, I think the last band that had been asked to be a member was back in the early 80s, which was uh, the Whites, which is Ricky Skaggs' wife and her sister and their dad. Um, and we were like, well, yeah, I, I, how, do, how do we do that? You know, just show up on this night and we're going to induct you into the into the Opry. So that's been, oh my goodness, 25 years ago. Hard to believe. Um, so that, that those kind of things, winning awards, winning the CMAs and the ACMs and the Grammy and all that kind of stuff, that just kind of, you don't really, I don't know, you're not really thinking about that when you're writing music and you're trying to, you're having fun. We've had a lot of fun doing that and getting a chance to do that and actually get paid to do it somewhat, and then people buying records and, and uh, you know, record label being happy with you and actually giving you bonus checks and things like that. It was like, okay, I, I, you, know, I, you know, I guess I could say that at some point you might become, you might take some of that for granted, but, boy, at the first, none of that was really on the radar. It was just like, hey, we got a hit on the radio. I remember when we, you know, when you're in the studio, you're working – you work your butt. You work for a year recording these songs, and you you're you're almost you're tired of them almost. You know, by the time they come out yeah. and they're quote unquote brand new, and you go out and you start playing them, and the people singing back to you and know the songs, and that's a great feeling. Uh, still, probably my favorite thing to do, which we'll do in Poplar Buff, hopefully, and people will sing the songs and know them still to this day, and two or three generations worth. You know, so that that's always that's. That's the things that I dreamed about, um, but you know, uh, a lot of the other stuff, the accolades and all the things that kind of come with it. I, you know, getting to go to the White House a couple of times, meet the president, whatever. That you know, it's like that's not stuff 
what I dreamed about. You know, I, I didn't dream that big. <laughs> <laughs> now here we are more than 30 years later, and folks are still singing those songs. And, and I do want to get into a couple more. Quick note on Porter Wagner, by the way. He, he's from not far from Poplar Bluff. He was yes, that's, born in that's right. He sure is. Yeah, so. I knew that. I knew that. Yes, he is. But he was a... He was a, an interesting guy. He he was very uh, dedicated to uh, helping new young talent. He really was. Um, you know, Porter. He's like any human being. He wasn't perfect, and he was a hoot. We used to fish in tournaments. I'll fish against him. He had a buddy, and I had a and Monty Powell and I. We would get in these fishing tournaments. You know, at at night, go from like seven to midnight, and. Porter would they would win a lot, and Monty and I are pretty good fishermen, and we 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 might have accused them of cheating a couple times. <laughs> and that was before he even knew who I was. <laughs> I never brought that up to him, but, <laughs> but yeah, um, he was a good he was he was a good friend to me. That's for sure. Well, let, let's get into some more of these songs. I uh, wanted to ask you about in a week or two. Uh, I'd, I've always loved that song. Came off your second album in, in 1992. That's definitely the next one I wanted to ask you about. What do you remember about recording in a week or two and the reaction from it? Um, you know, when, when we first heard that song, uh, it was one of you know you get. We'd had a system since there's six guys. You can't. Um, we had to go with majority rules. You know, I mean, or we'd never get anything done. It couldn't be unanimous. Um, so usually when we listen to the demos for the first time, everybody, we got to this system where we, we call it, you give the song the finger and it's not the one you're thinking about. <laughs> but you, you put up your, put up your first, your, your index finger to push the fast forward button. And if four of them came up, boom, it, it was, it was gone. If no fingers came up or only two or three came up, we listened to it through and it got put in a different pile and we would re-listen to it. And I remember it getting a unanimous vote, and uh, which meant that more likely we were definitely going to go in the studio and track it and, and at least try to try to make it our own, and that's what we always tried to do. Um, and it was, I mean, I, I, that one really, I, my memory of it came off pretty easy. Um, and it was kind of a no-brainer, and it it's just a great song. And so you're you're just hoping that somebody else doesn't put it out before you do. <laughs> was that a possibility with that song? Was there somebody else looking at it? There is a there is a system, or there was anyway. I don't know if it still exists or not, but there was a system of honor where if you a recording act on a major label and you put a song on hold, then the publishers would not pitch it to anyone else and wouldn't let anyone else have it on hold. Um, but then you deal with sometimes the writer is actually gets a record deal also, and they want the song back, yeah. <laughs> which we use. We have said okay. I mean, we we I mean, it's, it's you know it's a community of people that you know. Um, uh, I believe what was it? James House was a writer on that, and he was working on a, on a on a deal or or something, but he he never. Never asked for the song back. He's like, no, he's because I, I remember having that conversation. Now that you bring it up, and he's like, no way. He said, man, you guys will have a bigger hit on it than me. I'm just trying to break in here as an artist. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he saw he he saw that uh, 
there were more dollar signs if he let Diamond Rio do it, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good way to look at it. You guys were having good success with lead singles off of albums because the, the lead single off the next one was Love a Little Stronger, and that was the title track, and uh, that'd be the next one that uh, I'd kind of like to hear about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, same kind of deal. I mean, the, the, it's interesting. The number the, the ones that were definitely went to number one, we had, uh, depending on what charts you're looking at, we had nine or ten of them. Um, R&R was kind of the chart we looked at. Billboard was going through a big transition during the 90s, uh, how they monitored music. So they weren't in very many markets, but uh, or so they told us. Uh, <laughs> um, but anyhow, we, we uh, yeah, that one, once again, um, loved the chorus on that song. I, we made a, I, and I can't remember what we did. We, Jimmy, there was something to do with the bridge or whatever that we, which we were guilty of doing sometimes. We would rewrite. We did that on Meet in the Middle. There was no bridge to Meet in the Middle, and we wrote that. But we never did ask for credit for it. Um, didn't seem like the right thing to do. Um, probably should have, but uh, whatever. Um, but, we, yeah, we, we did some working work on that and uh, felt like it made it even better. Um, just a little B section uh, there of the chorus and uh, – Babe, I love uh, to see uh, and meet in the middle. Babe, I love the way we work it out. But, you know, that's what love is all about. Yeah. Yeah, I take credit for that. Uh, <laughs> um, but um, uh, same thing with uh, Love a Little Stronger. And, and, but we, we knew the chorus was a hit. And so at that point, it's, it's up to you not to mess it up pretty much. And uh, don't think we did. Had a lot of fun with that video. Um, I remember that video because... We were in Santa Fe, and uh, was supposed to, you know, video was supposed to look real hot and sweaty, and it snowed the day before, <laughs> and uh, so we had to wait an extra day. And my wife called me that evening and told me that we were expecting our second child, uh, my daughter Sarah, huh. who is now twenty. Eight. How old is she? Twenty-eight. Yes. Does that sound right? I'm just throwing it out there. <laughs> yep. Yeah, she's born in November. Uh, yeah, twenty-eight years old. Wow. So. The follow-up single to that one was is one that um, I don't know if many people would call it their favorite Diamond Rio songs, but I've always had a place in my heart for it because it, it's just a little different, sounded a little unique, and that was uh, "Night Has Fallen in My Heart." Uh, what kind of yeah. reaction did 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 you get from that one, and, and how did you react the first time you heard it? Well, that that demo, I'm trying to remember the writer on that because he, had, he we cut another song. His, very he very recluse guy, um, and he made ice demos all by himself on this really antiquated equipment, and it was and it was great, and it, but it was it was incredibly quirky, and yeah. lots most people who listened to it didn't uh, uh, they didn't get it, you know it wasn't it didn't sound like anything the demos didn't sound like anything that was on the radio. Which was kind of what drew us, you know. All we had a lot of people who, by that time, who pitched us songs as, "Man, this sounds just like Diamond Rio." And for us, that really wasn't our goal. Our goal was to, for the new, the next new thing to be new, but not. And we weren't successful in that. I'm sure we released some singles that kind of sound like a previous one, but for the most part, we were trying to look for break new ground, you know, and. And uh, something that was fresh and didn't sound like the last thing, last ten things we did. Um, and that song definitely fit that bill. And it just had this, uh, 
it had banjo on it, and it had, you know, this really fast tremolo mandolin that was, that was synthetic. You know, it was, it was, he'd done it on a, an old synthesized keyboard or whatever, but <laughs> it was, and we tried, we did our best to try to mimic a lot of what he did. So yeah, it, it is a little quirky. But love, love that, love that chorus, love that song. It did. I don't. It didn't go number one or anything. But it was uh, an factual single. We, you know, we watched the when we released a single, it climbed up the chart. If if record sales goes back up, you know, then you know the single is having an impact mm-hmm. on people going. And back then, you know, when record sales wasn't you know a download from your couch, it was. You had to get up off the couch, go to a store, and find it, and pick it out, and buy it. <laughs> exactly. And we sold millions that way, and that's pretty amazing. <clears throat> that doesn't happen like that anymore. I just checked. Dennis Lindy was the writer on that. Does that sound familiar? That's it. Dennis Lindy. Yes. Crazy. It, but rest his soul. Uh, he was. A, I never met him. He wouldn't come to, you know, parties for. Gold records or, or platinum records or anything, we'd send them in the mail to him. But mm. and he he corresponded once or twice, but man, he just he just did his own thing, lived out in the country, and I don't. I, <laughs> <laughs> but man, he come up with some very creative, interesting stuff. Yeah, that's and always always enjoyed his demos because you didn't know you it was going to be something. Off the wall. <laughs> That's what I love. Some of about it was that terrible, song. and some of it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> that one definitely stood out among the crowd. Next yeah. album, four produced, "Walking Away." It's all in your head, holding um, about that ninety-five, yeah. ninety-six range. Any of those right. have an interesting story behind them? All of them have an interesting uh, story. <laughs> actually, that whole that whole album was. Um, I'm not sure I agree with him, but Tim Wall is like that was. That's always been his favorite of of all the albums we ever did. Um, uh, we, the whole industry was going through a little bit different time, but it was not the sales-wise. It did, I mean, it was gold, I don't know, sold six or seven. It did go platinum. Uh, boo-hoo. Um, and, but, so at the time, I guess we were, you know, dissatisfied with it. But, man, had a great, I think top to bottom was probably some of the better recordings that we made, but um, might have been a little slick. For some people's taste, <laughs> I don't know. But Holden is probably still one of my favorite tunes that we do. We we do that in the show. Um, what else was on there? Uh, walking away, it's on your head. Yeah, we do all that stuff. All in your head. That was a blast. Now that was a stretch. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we had we had people in certain parts of the country. I won't mention that. You know where Pentecostal religion, which and they they handle snakes to this day and stuff. They they the radio stations felt like they would take issue with it, and I was like, "Well, it's saying exactly what they preach." I mean, I grew up with some of those folks, mm-hmm. literally, uh, in Southern Ohio, and uh, great people. Um, man, I mean, that's that's their belief. But uh, it was written Van Stevenson. I don't know if you remember Van. He was Black in Hawk. Black Hawk. Yeah, he's passed away. He is a writer on him and Dave Robbins, and. Um, and Van, in his early days growing up, he was a preacher as a kid. He was a child prodigy preacher, 13, 14, 15 years old, preaching, you know, that fire and brimstone stuff. Um, and uh, he wrote that from from heart, you know, from how he grew up. Uh, that, you know, and I knew people 
my grandfather, who was a coal miner, he didn't believe we walked on the moon. He thought it was so much baloney. <laughs> they made that out in California somewhere. <laughs> I mean, you know, um, and I think there's still people to this day that think that. So, yeah. I mean, it, I thought it spoke to a lot of folks out there, and it did It did really well. It went 15 in the charts. We got a chance to do a video. A great shoot. Great video. Probably one of the, if not the best video we've done. It had Martin Sheen in it. And, took us three days to do it and it was like a movie it was a blast to be a part of that i was i was in it very little but it was awesome <laughs> and uh and it went to like 15 but there are a few the reason it didn't go further it had lots of impact we sold a lot of records on that single we do that in our show every night i always loved it the content in it but i, I just i think reacted just how catchy it was you, you made it sound really cool <laughs> well <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, but that was that was we you know we all grew up. We went through that in the nineties, you know, where Elvis was still sightings of Elvis and all, you know, the whole nine yards, and and it was pretty it was pretty current to some, you know, it was more like a tabloid song, <laughs> kind of. It's like you pull off one of the tabloids out of the out of the grocery store and just write a song on the headlines. <laughs> <laughs> Next up would be that greatest hits album, Marty, and uh, and obviously all your your big yeah. hits are on there, and then a couple of new ones that ended up being two of the biggest greatest hits uh, in in Diamond Rio's career, including "How Your Love Makes Me Feel," which was a, a big number one for you. Yeah, th- those are interesting. Time. They were we were always in the mode to do a full album, so we had a already been working on several things and, and they were like you know you owe us a greatest hits on you and at, at this point in your, your contract and we we're like okay so we just we picked two of the best and, and put that out there and went, kept going to work on what would be the next one following that but um had great success with with that stuff man we still do that that was you know i think jimmy he didn't care for the first verse i think it's like uh How's it go? I'm no poet and I know it. Something like that. Yeah, I'm no poet and I know it. I don't use $5 words. Yeah, $5 words. Yeah, something like that. I'm supposed to know all that. (laughs) You kicked into it, I remember. (laughs) But we'll be doing that too. But yeah, that's, uh, it. you know, my girls, that that goes back to, you know, people want to have fun. It's entertainment business. You know, for us, it's our livelihood and it's all we think about. We eat and breathe it, breathe it. But the reality is, is that this is, this is, a, this is entertainment. This is something people listen to in their spare time, riding down the car, whatever. It's not the main thing in their life. And they want to have fun and, and it needs to be catchy. And I used to play the demos for my kids. I, because I was home during the week, most of the time, worked the weekends. I took, I was the school bus. Our kids, we had kids all over our street here at the time. So I'm taking kids to school and going to all the drop-offs, and I would I would play the demos for these kids that were, you know, in second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, whatever. And and they, you know, the ballads, the one more days and stuff like that, it was like a big yawner to them. They didn't care. <laughs> but, buddy unbelievable how your love makes me feel stuff like that oh my goodness they're like they they want to hear it and they called it the ice cream song and doggone it yeah the public in general called it that play the ice cream song dad man it's like <laughs> i got so tired of listening to that demo good <laughs> but i love playing it i love i'll do it every night 
<laughs> I think another thing that helped its popularity was that wasn't there like a big lyric debate going on at the time? Like I think some people heard it as there's a cow in the road and others heard it as car in the road. It kind of sparked some interesting debate. <laughs> if you watched if you watched the video, I made sure that they had to have a cow in it. Uh, I wanted a real cow. They come up with some of them big fake, you know, porcelain, <laughs> whatever, plastic cow that they put in there. Um I was going to milk it for them. <laughs> I did grow up on a farm, so <laughs> I don't think they wanted to see that. <laughs> I remember showing up for that video because we it was we shot it on green screen, of course, and uh, we'd never done that before. <clears throat> and I loved it because, man, I, I was out of there by lunch break, and I went and played golf that afternoon. But I showed up in my bibs. And uh, our managers at the time, she was like, what, what, what's your, where's your costumes? You know, go get them out of the car. I said, this is it. This is what I'm wearing. She goes, no. I said, yep, I'm wearing my bibs. <laughs> and so I did. <laughs> well, I got to go revisit that music video now. It was fun. We had a good time with that. Yeah. Actually, uh, Jimmy, Jimmy was absent for that because his father had had, uh, was having, had a, a massive heart attack and was having surgery, open heart surgery, and he he missed that video. And we pay homage to that at the end, where we we have five of us on a little tricycle, and one is is empty. It's kind of our our take on the uh, uh, the the Paul McCartney is dead thing yep. that the Beatles did. <laughs> <laughs> Paul is dead. <laughs> There you go. Jimmy is dead. No. His dad pulled out, and Jimmy's fine too. <laughs> what are your best vocal performances, Marty? I thought, and you are a great vocalist. But uh, on the song "You're Gone," um, we actually do kind of a sad song segment that I'm going to use this for. I always enjoyed singing along to that one. I always really enjoyed your vocal performance on on "You're Gone." Absolutely, it's a great, great song. Um, that one came to us from a couple of legends um really uh, paul uh, lesnar who's uh, married to uh kathy matea um john Vesner, and uh, yeah. sorry and 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 paul um oh goodness williams Lelinas. <laughs> paul williams <laughs> how could i forget that <laughs> and we got the opportunity to meet them uh when we cut we cut it it wasn't even out yet but uh they were paul's in town and we went to to lunch with him and John and uh, played the rough of the song. We were almost done with it, but um, he told the story behind it because he's he was someone who dealt with substance abuse, and he had, he said, man, I went through several years of my life that I can't remember, and he said, I was with a wonderful lady who stayed with me way longer than anybody should, and finally she had had enough, and he said, I'm told that story to John one day, and John was talking about, um, you know, his, his life and and, and uh, a person apparently was in his life that he was not the same scenario, but um, that, uh, you know, there's nothing bad that, that came of that person being in my life except for the fact that they're not in my life anymore, and that's where they came up with that. And uh, just a, I mean, great song. Once again, that one got all six. That did not get any fingers. That song it was unanimous, and and we knew we were going to going to give it our best effort when we got done with it. We were, yes, very, very pleased with that, and uh, and it did well. And uh, we, you'll hear that. Uh, 
next week in the, at the show. I'm very glad to hear that. That is one of my all-time favorite songs by anybody, not just not just Diamond Rio. Some great lyrics in that song. So uh, as we move into the 2000s, three more number ones, one more day, beautiful mess, and I believe anything uh, anything about those three songs that stands out in your memory, Marty. Yeah, new house, new cars, all kinds of good stuff. Cha-ching. <laughs> um, man, yes. You know what's interesting? We, we'd, at that point, we'd had an awful lot of success, and uh, you know, we were kind of in a groove. Uh, it was just what we did for a living. I wouldn't say we definitely took it for granted, but uh, I guess we had some pretty high expectations on what we, what we put out and what we did and expected some success anyway out of it. And... Uh, but we had never had two number ones, and Joe Galani had just uh, taken over. Arista had merged BMG and Sony and all. I can't remember how it all came down, but they were, there were mergers going on. And uh, Joe uh, ended up taking over the BMG, which encompassed Arista and uh, and CBS and when Sony, which Sony had gotten had bought and CBS, whatever. And so it was all BMG. BMG is a huge German publishing company and they they basically you know came in and scooped it all up somehow or another RCA not Columbia but RCA and uh, Joe was RCA and and and, uh, and uh, Tim was you know heiress to whatever they, they consolidated and Tim backed away and Joe took over but Joe I told Joe I said we had we had never had two number ones in a row this was when we were released when uh, beautiful mess was climbing the charts, and, and it was man. I heard when I heard that song. My wife really liked that. One. She said that song's just sexy. And I went, okay. <laughs> <laughs> when your wife says you, anything you do is sexy, you go yes, that's right. <laughs> um, so uh, and then we were talking. You know, the next single, I believe we had that. We had uh, another great ballad on there that never never was a single, but um, it was it was a debate between which ones would be, but um, I believe we came, came the single and uh, and did it. That was, uh, we had a great time with that video, even though we froze our butts off. But we shot that video on my 20th wedding anniversary, downtown, staged this big accident. There were helicopters. It was during drive time. It was not a very busy road, but apparently it was on the radio. They were talking about this accident that happened on James <laughs> Robertson Parkway, and then they had to come back on and say, that's not a... Actual accident, it's a video being shot, whatever. <laughs> you know, only in L.A. and New York and Nashville would hear that. But, <laughs> but, um, but we, uh, it was genuinely cold, let me tell you. But, yeah, just lo- love that song and what it had to say about, it really spoke to who we are, we are and some of our beliefs or whatever. And it's nice to put out something that has some real substance to it and uh, lots of folks. One more day in that song, both, you know, really... Um, made a made a permanent mark in a lot of our fans' lives and helped them through some difficult times and give them a good perspective on things. Um, and so that's a blessing for us to have a part of a song like that. But that's the only time we ever had back-to-back number ones was Beautiful Mass and I Believe, yeah. believe it or not. It took that long. Now, on the first album, we, we had two number ones and five top five records, you know, on, on the first album. But never back to back. <laughs> but who's complaining, man? 
Can you believe um, 20 years has gone by since since 2002? It's crazy how time's flying. Yeah, I know, I know. Any Diamond Rio fan knows also, Marty, that you guys can be found on, on some key tribute albums to some major artists over the years, like the Eagles, you were on the Common Thread album, Keith Whitley, mm -hmm. uh, you did uh, 10 Feet yeah. Away on the tribute to Keith Whitley, and then the, the Merle Haggard tribute with Working Man Blues. Obviously, those were three key figures for you guys and influences, or you probably wouldn't have done the project. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, but, yeah, the Common Thread thing was uh, was interesting because we had, um, on the, the album prior to, and I think maybe Tim already had gotten wind, that Don Henley was wanting to do a project with some country artists, and uh, and Arista was probably going to get the contract anyway. And I, but we didn't know anything about. But we were we were wanting to cut an Eagles song for the next album because the Eagles stuff was something that really influenced a lot of the guys in the band, and, and that we were actually um, and it it fit what was going on in country radio at the time. You know, the Eagles. 70s, you know, rock and roll would be considered country for the most part. Well, maybe not even country anymore, you know. It might, might be too country. Too country, but, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, which is kind of weird. But, um, <laughs> that, you know, so uh, he said, nah, he said, you, well, I don't really want to do copy songs. So before we're done with that album, he comes to us and tells us that, there's this new project that Henley's going to do, and we were like, yeah, we want to be on that. So it all came together anyhow. I don't know if he planned that or it just happened and it made him look really good or what, but uh, he took the credit. <laughs> <laughs> but um, getting a chance to do that was fun and got a chance to, to meet Don. And once again, he, he treated us all to lunch one day here in town and and we and he said, okay, we got done eating and they were bringing you know, dessert or something. And he, he was like, uh, he said, okay, I, he says, you guys are a band. I know you, you, you are, you have unique perspective on, on my life probably. Or he says, or, or maybe he said, I have unique perspective on what you guys deal with, blah, 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 as a band. He said, any question you want to ask, ask it. And we were like, it got dead quiet for a second because him and, you know, um, oh gosh, the other boy. God rest his soul. Glenn Fry. That, that were Glenn that yeah. had kind of fussed and fought off and on for years. Um, I think they were not speaking to one another at the time, but it took about maybe five seconds, and here they come, man. <laughs> we started busting him about, you know, hey man, well, how come this is just well, who who actually did this? You know, here's you know here's the rumor. What's you know, and man, we talked for about an hour. And he just, he was fine with it. Wow. <laughs> and I can't pass along any of what it was about. But <laughs> it, was, it was funny because um, we could relate. I mean, you know, uh, being in a band is, 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 it's like a marriage, except, you know, times six. Um, and uh, sometimes it works, which it does for us, and sometimes it's an absolute mess. And uh, we've been really, really fortunate to, to have it work we we respect one another and, and we understand that you know guys need their space and they everybody's got idiosyncrasies and just because you know yours kind of wears me out doesn't mean that i don't have one that wears you out so you have to just kind of respect each other's space and uh, we've been able to do that 
did you get to choose which songs you sang on these tributes, or were they assigned to you? Just out of curiosity, Lion Eyes is probably my favorite Eagles song, and, and you got to you got to sing it. You know, that was the song that we had that I had pitched uh, to do on our album, and so when you know the second that I mean we were in the room, I mean it just came out of Tim's mouth, you know that we we we, we were being asked to do this project. Uh, and I was like, well, there you go. I mean, it was just because, you know, it had been just a few months we'd talked about doing so. I said, well, I'm out of lion eyes. He goes, I'll see if it's not taken yet. And there you, and we got a chance to do it. Cool. And I, man, that thing's got a lot of verses. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> we used to do that in the show, but we don't at the moment. I think that it is, we have a live CD that we sell out on the road, and I think it's on that. I can see. But I'm not sure. I can see how you would get confused with all those verses. How you might mix them up a little bit. There, there is. That's a long song. <laughs> it is, but it was fun, it was fun to do, and uh, but, yeah, doing that, and then the, the Whitley thing. Uh, I mentioned earlier, Gene had worked with J.D. Crow. Well, Keith was was the lead singer in J.D. Crow in New South for a couple for several years, and while Gene was there. Uh, and so they were, and they were roommates, and they knew each other very well. They were really good friends, and it was really tough when we lost him. Wasn't a big surprise, to be honest, uh, the way he just troubled the soul. Mm-hmm. Um, but an incredible, incredible talent. Um, and uh, so getting a chance to be on that made perfect sense. And then the Haggard thing, I, I was named for Marty Robbins, but... When I got a chance, when I first started making my choices, Haggard was who I chose. My dad was not a huge fan of Merle, but Merle and Marty Robbins got along really well, and Merle opens a lot of Marty's shows. So we went to a lot of Marty's shows, and Merle was always opening. And I, I love the first song I ever learned all the way through, was about maybe four, was The Fugitive. And my dad had taped it. I've got a recording somewhere of this little four-year-old boy singing The Fugitive, you know, it's like, it's just, just hilarious. But, but um, I knew all the words. I had it all worked out. Marty, you got the dog barking on that one. I see that. I'm sorry. My goodness, I'm sorry. You can cut that part out. I've probably uh, taken enough of your time anyway, Marty. I think I got everything I need. Uh, I, I sure appreciate you doing this. And uh, we're, we're going to invite as many folks as we can out to Poplar Bluff on Friday night to see Diamond Riel live in person at the Black River Coliseum. Does that sound good? Please do, man. We're looking forward to it. And uh, we'll, we'll do the best we can to get to your favorite one before the night's up. Marty Rowe, lead singer of Diamond Rio, and the latest member of the Honky Talk Time Machine.